social media offers us this great potential to be in, in touch with our audiences. The problem is if, if you're too personal and too relational with the people, then you risk losing that professional veneer. And if you're too professional and robotic, then you risk losing the audience, which is the whole reason you're there in the social media in the first place. <laughs> so it's, it's a, a difficult conundrum for journalists to try to navigate. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital news and those who produce it. On the phone with me today is Logan Molyneux, an assistant professor at Temple University. Molyneux's research focuses on how digital technology has changed the way journalists do their jobs. Areas of particular interest are social media, personal branding, and the traditional role of journalist as gatekeeper. Welcome, Logan. Thank you. So let's start with that last point first. Are journalists still the gatekeepers? I think so. What's, what's changed is that they're not the only gatekeepers anymore. It used to be that there was something called the public or the audience, and, and there were only a few mass media channels that reached out to these people, and that's not the case anymore. I think journalists, I mean, the, the idea behind gatekeeping is that there's somebody who decides what to pass on, what, what to let through the gates. And journalists definitely do that in their job. That's a major portion of what they do is they exercise their news judgment in order to decide, okay, this is newsworthy. This is something that I feel my audience needs to know. So they're definitely still acting as gatekeepers, but I don't feel like they're the only ones anymore. And it's, it's questionable how, what effect their gatekeeping decisions have relative to all the other gatekeeping decisions that are happening. Because now we have newsmakers also making their own gatekeeping decisions about what they want to put into the public eye or what they want to feed to journalists. We also have members of the, the public who are deciding what to pass on to their friends via their social networks. It's difficult to, to measure how much one gatekeeper is influencing a, a larger conversation. Some people have sensed that the journalist's role as gatekeeper has diminished as a result of this. And I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but it's certainly different from what it used to be. So how has digital technology changed that? I, I think sort of reading between some of the lines that, that you said there, I sense that social media has a, has a big, big role in, the, in this change. Yeah, social media is definitely part of it. I, I think there's two things. And the first is the fragmentation of the audience. When you have a large group of people who are basically required to get, well, not required, but the, one of the few sources of information is the news media, and they... There are a few channels over which journalists have almost complete control. It's easy to see them as gatekeepers, you know, as having strict control over what things come out in, into the public eye. Now the audience is fragmented, not just among different media types, but among different media platforms. There's many more entertainment options, and people are choosing to go away from news altogether if it's not something that's of interest to them. And so when, when you don't have a, a large segment of the population concentrated around in a, a single media channel, it's difficult to say that a, that a single journalist's decision or even a single news outlet's decisions have a, a widespread effect on, on the general public. So I, I think, you know, in, in the old model, let's just talk about like television, for example, where you had a limited number of networks and a limited number of stations for each community, and there were certain segments of the content, there's certain time frames where, which were dedicated to public service and dedicated to, to news, and you didn't have a lot of options to go anywhere else. So if the news was on, you know, because the radio or the, pardon me, the TV station decides that this is when the news is going to be and these are the stories that you need to, to go, they're, they're pretty much controlling the message. But now we have a 24-hour 
news cycle, we have access to so many different sources of news that uh, it's difficult for the, the, the journalist to, quote unquote, control the, the flow of news. <laughs> right. I don't know if a journalist would ever tell you that they intended to control it, you know, because that implies a sense of manipulation. But they did definitely have a different kind of power in those days than they than they do now. And I think it's absolutely true that the consumer choice has increased. And so people are able to act on their preferences a lot more easily than they might have in the past. So from a consumer's perspective, it's the best time in the world, you know, where journalism and news is concerned, because you can find the information that you want on just about anything. And you can, you have an array of choices from where to get it. From a journalist's perspective, you may feel like your audience is disappearing, or you may feel like you're having less effect than you used to. Yeah. And many times you feel like you're sort of chasing your audience to try to get them <laughs> to pay attention to what you have to say. So one of the one of the, your areas of focusing, and, and you know, I um, I became sort of aware of what you were doing. I was looking online. I'm not exactly sure where I saw uh, one of the reports that you you had done. You'd done some research about social media branding and the way uh, journalists were using Twitter, for example, yeah. uh, to, to distribute the stories, but also sort of you know track stories. Could you sort of talk about your research in that area? Yeah, how, how journalists use Twitter has been a, a focus of a lot of my work, actually. It started out a few years ago in the summertime when we put together a large list of political journalists leading up to the 2012 election. And we we followed everything that these 430 political journalists tweeted, starting with the political conventions and then leading up through the 2012 general election. So we had a large data set of what these political journalists were doing on Twitter and we looked at that in several different ways, trying to see the things that they were doing on there and, and notice new trends, also trying to apply old thoughts about how political journalism works to Twitter and see whether these, you know, these same things still hold true in this new digital medium. I mean, there's several different things that we found. Some of them, some of the highlights, I think, are that journalists use Twitter very differently than they would use their polished news products on television or in print or even online. They tend to include more opinion, more humor, and then elements of what a colleague and I have started to call personal branding in, in journalism. And I, I don't think that that's a unique term, but we're trying to define exactly what that is in a, in a journalism sense. Well, and what's, the thing about Twitter is, is that, you know, it's obviously it's a social media platform. And, and one of the you know, appeals, or at least one of the things that people try to try to push on, on Twitter is that, you know, it's your identity or not so much, you know, the mouthpiece of an organization per se, that, that what whoever you are is very much a part of whatever the message is you're putting out on Twitter. Right. And as journalism professors, me and my colleagues have often instructed journalism students to, you know, have a personal web page where it's like a portfolio for them, but also to have a social media presence so that people can recognize you and see who you are. And that's not just good for getting a job in the first place, but it's good practice when you're an active journalist and you want to build a reputation among your community and be seen as an expert on something. So it's advice that working journalists are getting. What we're trying to tease out is what effect that might have on the journalists and their work and also how they're perceived by their audiences. Okay, so what is the impact that Twitter would have on, on something, the sort of traditional journalistic values of like objectivity and independence? That question is a little bit difficult to answer. We, we spent, the, this was probably the hardest part of uh, one of the research papers that we ever 
that we did was trying to figure out how to measure and count whether there was an opinion in a person's tweet. Most of the time, the, the language is just too short to tell <laughs> what's going on there exactly. But we eventually got it to the point where we could say, yes, these ones seem to have some sort of characterization or you know opinion about the news, and these ones don't. Opinion was not not an overwhelming majority of the tweets. In fact, I want to say it was like a quarter or something of them had, had some hint of opinion in them. But the standard is the journalist should have none, right? Right. And so it was, it was sort of surprising for us to find any sort of opinion there. And it was even more so when I did a study looking specifically at what journalists retweet, the things that they pass on. I thought this would be an interesting place to look because journalists often have some sort of caveat in their profiles that says retweets are not endorsements or... Uh, something like that, which I don't think the audience even acknowledges that. They, <laughs> you know, they, they they may see that line and may understand what it means, but when a journalist passes something on, it's because they they saw something about it that was worth passing on. And so anyway, I looked at everything that journalists decided to retweet, and a lot of it was opinions from other people. In fact, a, a large majority it was not newsy stuff. When they when they retweet things, they don't have to. They feel like they don't have to take that responsibility for it, and so they're they're letting some of that opinion through the filter, uh, in the in the form of retweets. So is that where you saw that people were mostly having an opinion on Twitter? Was well, and it's hard to say. It's hard to say whether the journalists themselves actually had that opinion. I, they could have retweeted it because they thought it was a ridiculous opinion, <laughs> right? But it, it was an opinion, and they they chose to send it along to their followers as something I don't know that was interesting or you know, for whatever reason of value to their followers. Well, I, I imagine if you're, you're you're covering something like a political campaign and you've sort of set a line where, you know, whatever I tweet is going to follow a particular journalistic tenant of objectivity and, and, and independence. And then the retweet is something that maybe they wouldn't they wouldn't report but that they, maybe they recognize that as part of the political dialogue at the moment um, yeah. as a way to bring in nuance or uh, some other uh, opinion to what, what actually is going on in the story. Right. And, and from the audience's perspective, it's all part of the same stream, right? So whether a journalist is tweeting it in their own voice or passing along information from somebody else, it's still coming from that sort you know, I follow so-and-so at the New York Times. I'm seeing everything that they send through to me. And I... As an audience member, I'm not really parsing out, oh, he just retweeted that. So, you know, now I'll try to read between the lines and figure out what he meant by, it, you know, like you said, it's just all part of the the conversation. And so I think it's valuable for journalists to have both of those tools. They might just want to be careful about how they use both of them, because I, I don't think that, at least from the audience's perspective, you have no responsibility for the things that you retweet. <laughs> right. And, and I think that this idea that if, you know, even if you just put this caveat in your your profile that, you know, whatever you're tweeting is not an endorsement. The fact that you've chosen to make it part of your Twitter stream, I think, says something. And I don't think people who are reading it passively are, are making that necessarily a big distinction between it. Well, and I don't think your employer makes a big distinction either. We did some studies talking to journalists, and several of them are very nervous about their social media use, specifically because they don't want to mess up and get fired or, you know, be reprimanded in some way. And so a lot of them will intentionally be more conservative 
in their social media use, not, not in a political sense, but like careful in their, in their social media use than they might otherwise because they're, they're nervous of offending somebody and then getting uh, in trouble for it at work. In your research, did you come across anybody who had been disciplined or had lost their job? No, nobody specifically. I mean, we've all heard of, of cases before because they tend to make the news. Somebody was fired because of something that they tweet, you know, or was suspended because of something that they tweeted. Yeah. And um, it's usually not anything like, you know, oh, my gosh, they, they said something terrible about a political candidate or one of their sources or something. It's usually something very minor and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can seem that way. And and, and a, lot of, a lot of the journalists that we talked to were painfully aware of the fact that a couple of slip-ups, you know, and, and they can be in big trouble. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the idea of personal branding. This is something that, that we've talked about occasionally on the podcast, this idea that you need to create the, you know, whatever your brand is of, of who you are. And social media plays a huge part of that because that's kind of your voice out there in the world to a lot of people. One would assume that the the, the news stories that you're writing are, are going to be objective and there's not going to be a, much of your voice in it unless you're a columnist or you're an opinion writer. But your presence out there in social media is, is your brand. So how important is that for a, a journalist to be aware of but also to, to, to develop? I think a lot of places, you know, Pointer and also journalism schools are talking about it as something that everybody should do. In practice, our, our research suggests that, that journalists are doing it but are are careful about it and are a little bit nervous about it for a couple of reasons. First, I think it makes sense to talk about what I found in my study of what journalists retweet. Is a lot of them were sending along things about themselves. Sometimes it was announcements about when they were going to be on TV or when they were going to have a meeting with so-and-so. Other times it was they were passing along compliments they received. They were retweeting nice things other people said about them. They would also retweet mean things that other people said about them, sometimes with a comment, you know, to kind of rebut the the insult, other times just passing it along as, you know, letting people read their hate mail. And it was a little strange to me to see all that conversation about the journalists themselves being passed along to their audience. The only thing I can think is that they're trying to show, you know, I'm resilient enough that even when people are insulting me, I can still do my job. Or here's some people who say, I want to pass along the compliments I received too to try to show you that this, you know, that I'm a legit journalist and, you know, establishing my reputation here. We did a few more studies where we talked to journalists themselves and they, they brand themselves in a bunch of different ways. Some of them will have webinars or, or meetings with the community. A lot of it is done on social media, trying to build a, a professional profile and engaging in conversation with the audience. A key part of, of social branding, personal branding, I think, especially on social media for journalists is that they are actively working to develop relationships with people who read what they write. They establish themselves as an expert in a certain area, and they try to try to cultivate a relationship. When a person feels like they owe you something, then they'll come back over and over and read your your stuff. And if you are able to cultivate that kind of following, that goes with you wherever you go. You give you leave one job, it follows you to the next one. <laughs> so, in a from a, a the journalist standpoint, it's incredibly valuable to do it that way. Yeah, what what are some of the uh, personal effects that branding might have? So a lot of people told us that there was a, a tension for them between their personal and their professional lives on social media. Most people started a, a Facebook profile or a Twitter account as a way to connect with friends. Not everybody. A lot of people got onto social media specifically for professional purposes. But for the people who have a mix of personal contacts and professional contacts on their on their social media platforms, 
they said that they were finding it really difficult to keep those two groups either together or completely separate. <laughs> that things would bleed over if they were trying to keep it separate or if they tried to keep it together, then they would risk offending one half or the other of their following. People felt pressure from their employers to make their social media feed almost entirely professional and to act at all times as a representative of the company. You're a journalist for such and such, just pretty much any time you say something on social media, it's connected with the company, the news organization. And so you have to be careful about what you do. That led them to kind of censure the the personal side of what they might have used social media for in the past. They might not have been as personal or as uh, humorous, you know, taking some of those risks that you might on social media or in a personal setting that aren't appropriate in a professional setting. And so they they found it hard to navigate these waters. I know some people have given the advice to have a personal account and a professional account separately. In practice, a journalist told us that that's not really what they do. They Most of them have one and they're just trying to make it work. Yeah. And it's tough. I know with my own experiences, I, you know, because I, you know, I have my own personal account. I have a professional account associated with the, uh, the company I work for. I've got an account to go with the podcast. I've got an account um, that uh, I'm in charge of updating for the the place I work. So I have multiple accounts. Uh, my identity is in there somewhere. I assume it'd be more in the personal account or my personal professional account. But it's difficult to manage because on the one hand, you, you want to, you know, you want to be professional. And wherever you're at, you should certainly be uh, responsible. You, you can't be naive to think that, you know, some tweet that you're going to send out, nobody's going to see it. And it might not have an impact on day-to-day life or your professional life. Yeah, it, it, it's strangely um, difficult because I've, I've met um, journalists who have everything on one account or they don't have a Facebook account that's that's personal because they, they, they feel that that's just not something that they, they're able, they're going to be able to make that separation. But but then I, I've met others who, who have multiple accounts and try to parse them out. But that's difficult to do. Yeah. Well, and here's the real rub. The value for the audience in social media and, and in uh, participating in news and journalism in a, in a social media setting is that you can have a more personal relationship with the newsmakers, whereas previously that wasn't possible. It was just somebody talking at you, right? Right. And now people want to participate in a conversation. Not everybody, but there's there's people who want to participate and help be part of the newsmaking process. And social media offers us this great potential to be in, in touch with our audiences. The problem is if, if you're too personal and too relational with the people, then you risk losing that professional veneer. And if you're too professional and robotic, then you risk losing the audience, which is the whole reason you're there in the social media in the first place. <laughs> so it's, it's a, a difficult conundrum for journalists to try to navigate. And the other thing is, and, and we're, we've been mostly talking about Twitter, because I think journalists love to talk about Twitter. And, and one of the reasons what is that really uh, for the larger population, the percentage of people who actually are actively following Twitter is much smaller than it is percentage, comparing percentage to percentage uh, of journalists. There are a lot of journalists on on, on, face, or on Twitter a lot of what they do is they're they're talking to other journalists, and it's almost like an echo chamber. That sometimes the impact of that is is that things that we see suddenly happening on Twitter um, may not be having as huge an impact in the larger populace, and the conversation can be very much like sort of an echo chamber where you're having journalists talking at journalists. 
I'd say that's definitely borne out in our research when we did a study of the political conventions, what people were tweeting, excuse me, what journalists were tweeting at the political conventions, we found that they were very much speaking with each other and with other political elites. There were very few retweets and mentions of people who might be considered to be members of the general public. So your impression, I think, that it's a, an echo chamber for journalists is pretty spot on. I don't know if it's always that way. I mean, we researchers tend to shy away from generalizations like that, but, but very frequently it is the case that journalists talk mostly among themselves. You know, we're in the middle of a very interesting political cycle right now. And, you know, once we get into the conventions and there's going to be a lot of, uh, well, even, you know, day to day with the, with the political cycle, there's there's this con constant scrutiny of what the different candidates are saying. And once we get into the in, into the conventions, uh, where a lot of journalists are going to be focusing their their attention, there'll be this sort of wealth of 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 Twitter information coming out from journalists who have access to these events. Now, journalists talking to journalists. I mean, what what are the what are the pluses and minuses of that? I mean, we we talk a little bit about the echo chamber, but is it if an audience can sort of access that, are they going to get a richer sort of discussion about what what's going on in the story? Do you think? I'm, I'm sort of torn about it. When we look historically, it's been a criticism of journalism for a long time that they are pretty much just having a conversation among elites. I mean, I think Lippmann back in the what was it, 20s or 30s was talking about how journalists are basically just talking amongst themselves and to other elite members of the public, and the public is too stupid to get involved, basically. So it's been a criticism for a long time, I think, that the journalists are too elitist. There's some credence to it. I think that people oftentimes don't see themselves in the news, don't see how they can make a difference, don't see where to get involved in the news. And so that's part of the reason behind things like community journalism and citizen journalism and solutions journalism. All of these ideas are focused on getting people more involved in the not only the newsmaking process, but in doing something about the news. On the other hand, I'm not sure at least part of what journalism does is just asking the questions. When there's somebody there looking over your shoulder, the watchdog role never really depended on people reading these investigative stories necessarily. Sometimes just the threat of going public is enough to make people change their actions. Sometimes just asking difficult questions and having somebody, even if it's only a journalist, looking over you is enough to make public officials change their, their way. Sometimes it's not, and you, uh, you, know, you need a, a wider audience behind you. So I think it's hard for me to say exactly what what effect it might have if journalists are talking to each other. Pretty much the reason we're talking about this is that we have a platform that allows the public to be part of the conversation. Nobody was saying, oh, journalists, or, I mean, newspapers never let the audience get involved. <laughs> well, of course they don't because they're, it's a one-way medium. Now when we have social media and journalists are on social media, one of the main criticisms is you guys are still in an echo chamber. It's the boys on the bus, and now we can kind of see through the windows, but you know, there's still no members of the public on the, on the political bus. So we're, we're, we're talking about you know, this, this, this sort of echo chamber. I mean, in your research, were you able to get any sense that, they're, that these reporters were engaging uh, their audience? Yeah, as I said, that's one of the things that we measured in, the, in our study of what journalists were doing at the political conventions. We tried to measure who they were linking to, who that they were mentioning and retweeting. And so we had different codes for the different types of people that they were linking to or, or retweeting. And in large part, they were linking to their own work or work by journalists at other 
organizations. There were a few links to campaign sites and almost nothing to anything else, that you know, a, a personal blog or anything else like that. As far as retweets and mentions are concerned, journalists were mentioned frequently by members of the public, but they were not returning those types of engagements. The mentions and retweets from journalists were very often other journalists and other members of the political elite. They you know, obviously frequently mention the politicians that they're covering and the other political actors that are being involved there at the, at the conventions. Yeah, somehow this, for some, this makes me think of, of the movie Animal House at the very beginning when they go into the one frat house that, that they're allowed to come in, but they, can't, they don't interact with anybody else there. <laughs> it's kind of funny because, like I said, social media gives the potential for people to have a conversation about the news. And I think there are people who definitely want to be part of that conversation. I don't know. Either journalists haven't found a way to do it practically or they're too you know, absorbed in their jobs to make the time to engage people and just have conversations with others. I think there's a, a strong contingent of not just academic researchers, but also um, other professionals and, and journalism educators who are we're trying to get people more engaged with their audiences and to, to take time to hang out with them and be a part of their world with the idea that this will make your coverage better. It will make your, your journalistic product more relevant to them and get them involved in the process so that you can hang on to that audience. Yeah, it's it's still almost like hanging on to that gatekeeper's role that, that we have the information and we're just going to put it out there. We're not, we don't necessarily want to hear what you have to say, per se, mm-hmm. but... You know, audience engagement is something that, that people talk about all the time in the sort of new paradigm of, of uh, the digital journalist. And I don't know if enough people are actually actively trying to engage with their audience. Yeah, our, our research suggests they're not, at least not yet. I mean, and that may have changed in the last couple of years. Maybe this, if we did the same study for the 2016 campaign, things might be different. But I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything that makes me think that there's been some major shift in the way journalists think about their audiences yet. Are you doing anything for the 2016 campaign? I'm working on a study right now which follows up on some of this uh, personal branding stuff. I want to see exactly how much it's happening, which means trying to get some large sample of journalists and then trying to measure everything that they do and what percentage of it is related to personal branding. I'm expecting to see some low amount of it. I don't know. I would guess the argument is any amount of it is taking away from some journalistic product or, or what we might consider to be traditional journalistic values, you know, of independence and, and objectivity. Have you seen that that's changing? I mean, is it has it changed much since your first look at this? If, if anything, more people are doing it as uh, social media get bigger and bigger. Although in the last couple of years, I've I've seen that Twitter has stopped growing, at least at the pace. It's not growing now at the pace that it had been. And so maybe we've sort of reached the saturation point. And if everybody on Twitter is journalists, then who are we branding to, right? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some questions there that I got to start asking too. Well, um, this has been this has been great. I really appreciate the uh, the conversation here. Now, where can people find your research at? Let's see. I have a personal website. It's loganmolino.com. I should probably update it because I haven't <laughs> updated it since I got the job here at Temple back in fall. I posted a few things on academia.edu and also on ResearchGate. I don't know if you're familiar with either of those mm-hmm. sites, but they're they're social, you know, sort of social networks for researchers, and so people should be able to see and download research that I've done at academia.edu. Next time on It's All Journalism. 
I don't know what Donald Trump would be like as president. Do you? I mean, he has given almost no indication of what he would be like as president other than completely unpredictable. In our next episode, we talk about covering the 2016 presidential election with Gabrielle Levy, political reporter at U.S. News and World Report. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Grisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. 